Welcome to the latest edition of Lifeline Theater's On the Air. I'm Alicia Duncan, Artistic Director. From Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood, we entreat you to open your heart to Sample of Solo, a selection of original fan-favorite stories from our Filet of Solo Festival. This is the third of four podcasts in this series. This week, we regale you with stories of revelation. Our first story is Riding a Windstorm, written and performed by Kurt Nabick. I'm 13 or 14, and I'm staying at a cabin with some of my friends from the skateboard team. We brought our skateboards, we've got a lot of weed, and there's a concrete drainage ditch nearby that looks to be a new skating mecca. But the only way to get there is to skateboard down State Route 113, a two-lane highway bordered by cornfields. It's pretty deserted, so it's safe and it's daytime, so cars can see us. We get to the ditch and ride for a while. Ah, the sides are lightly banked and it's on a downhill, so we are happy and high. It's fall, so the fields have been tilled up, but it's a really warm Indian summer. I'm with Tim and Russell, who is an identical twin. His brother Scott is back at the cabin. Suddenly, a windstorm whips up, so we begin to head back to the cabin. The wind gets even stronger, so powerful that it's whipping the dirt from the fields into the air, so it becomes what feels like a dust storm. Now, I've never been in a dust storm, but whoa! It can get pretty hard to see. It's almost darkness, and yet it's daytime. And then Tim takes his shirt off and holds it up in the air in front of him. And the wind is so fierce, it begins to pull him forward down the highway. Oh, my God! As if he had unfurled a sail out on the ocean. We all realize what's happening. Holy shit! And we whip our shirts off and begin getting pulled down the highway in a dust storm. Now, keep in mind, we're all really toasted, too, so the sensory feeling of the wheels beneath our feet, the wind on our shirtless bodies, the pull of the sails in front of us down the highway is absolutely amazing. And then I see, coming out of the dust storm toward us, a pair of car headlights. And I have this moment where I think something along the lines of, uh-oh, and I say loudly to the guys, I think maybe we should get off the highway. And then the screeching of the brakes of another car behind me. I jump off my board and the car hits my foot while I'm in midair, spins me around and lands me at the bottom of a ditch beside the road. As I look up, I see Russell on the hood of the car. And then he flies off the car lands on the highway and skids on his back across the blacktop with his legs straight out and his arms folded over his chest like the deceased in a funeral home. He comes to a stop and doesn't move. Tim and I run to him. By the time we get there, Tim is already crying. Russell is dead. He's lying there, dead. I'm dazed. Tim is crying. And then Russell rises from the pavement and stands up and looks at us. We are ecstatic. We can't believe he's alive. We say, are you okay? He says, yeah, I'm okay. 
He looks a little dazed, but is smiling. He's happy. He's fine. And we can't believe what a lucky break he got. He's intact. He's alive. He's standing in front of us and talking. And then in one of the strangest moments I've ever experienced in my life, Russell suddenly turned red with blood from head to toe. If you remember the poster from the movie Carrie, after the bucket of pig blood was poured on her head, that's what he looked like. And Russell is wiping his hands across his arms to clear the blood off and saying, I know I'm bleeding, but I don't know where it's coming from. If you ever fell down and skinned your knee really badly or accidentally cut yourself with a knife and things looked okay, and there was a short delay before the blood came, that's what happened to Russ. The ride of a shirtless body along the blacktop highway created a hamburger effect with his skin. An ambulance came and took him to the hospital. A bystander saw Scott at the cabin before we got there and told him that his twin brother was dead. The sky cleared of dust. We rode our boards silently back, down the highway. Russell got a lot of stitches, but he was okay. He still is. And we learned a cold, hard lesson. If you're going to skateboard down State Route 113, don't do it shirtless in a dust storm. The next story is Meet You at the Big Rock. Written and performed by Betsy Manzoni. Meet you at the Big Rock. The Big Rock was the epicenter of our neighborhood the entire time I was growing up. It was placed in the corner of our neighbor's yard, right where Sunset Lane curved into Starlight Drive. Its purpose? To keep drivers off the lawn and to force them to slow down at the curve. But the Big Rock was more than just a large hunk of granite. It became the cornerstone of our childhoods, serving multiple important roles throughout its life. It was our city center, the place where we all met up during the summer. We congregated there to decide which game was the flavor of the day and who would be it. It was also where we agreed to reconvene after hearing the cowbell that our neighbor used to call her children and we all knew it was time for supper. It was our town hall. Important rules became law there. And if you weren't at the Big Rock to vote on it, well, you just had to deal with it. It was our trading post. Trades fair and unfair were negotiated at the Big Rock. In many ways, I had an idyllic childhood. I had a vivid imagination, which served me and the neighborhood well. I was always directing the neighborhood kids in a recreation of the latest hit musical. We rode our Schwinn Bicentennial bikes down to the stop-and-go to pick out our penny candy. I always splurged on the more expensive Hershey bar. I had a piano in the basement that I used to teach myself to play. We camped in our own driveway, chased fireflies, and saw alligator lizards in the air while lying on our backs in the grass and staring at the clouds. And we had a family income that allowed us to live in Old Cherry Hill, an upper middle-class neighborhood on the edge of Joliet, away from the well-known areas plagued by crime. In many ways, I did not have an idyllic childhood. My parents were workaholics 
who were rarely emotionally available to us, and I was largely raised by my older siblings. Although my parents both had good incomes, there were so many of us kids that lessons of any sort were never really an option. Like many children growing up during that time, we were often left to our own devices, roaming the neighborhoods with no supervision. My trusts were betrayed by those who were supposed to love me the most. The Big Rock was a consistent and stable venue in which I celebrated my innocence and worked through the pitfalls of my childhood. While the Big Rock was a popular location among the neighborhood children, I can recall many times when it was just the Big Rock and me. I remember stopping there after a bike ride where I had been chased and bitten by a dog from the next neighborhood. I needed time to gather my thoughts before I went home crying. I had heard that they had to kill dogs that bite people. I wasn't sure I could live with that on my conscience. Thank goodness the big rock was there, so I had a place to sit and contemplate my situation. I decided not to tell. I used to climb on top of the big rock and jump off, practicing my cheerleading jumps the summer before high school. I was determined to make the cheerleading squad. After all, my 13-year-old brain was 100% convinced that cheerleading was the answer to high school. The Big Rock taught me what it felt like to commit myself to a goal and also what it felt like to soar. The Big Rock was my shoulder to cry on when the cruelty of bullying seemed to threaten my very existence and the darkness of abuse veiled my grammar school years. The Big Rock just sat still and strong and soaked up my sorrow. I think of these memories, my memories, and I wonder what memories are held inside the Big Rock. What stories, adventures, and tragedies are infused into every porous crack? Would the Big Rock want to share them if asked? Or would it hold the cinemas of our lives as its most valued treasures? When I was a newly divorced single mother, I moved back into my childhood home with my mom. My neighborhood became my children's neighborhood. Sunset Lane still curved into Starlight Drive, and the Big Rock still maintained its position as sentry. Meet you at the Big Rock, I'd hear their tiny voices call. Their memories of the Big Rock are likely as meaningful as my own. I'm so thankful their childhoods were landscaped with those same tangible experiences with the Big Rock as their epicenter too. In the early fall of 2018, my mom, who still lives in that house that I grew up in on Sunset Lane, had a fall and broke her hip. I rushed down to the hospital in Joliet from the city to see her. She asked for some things from home, so I drove over there to get them. Before returning to the hospital, I took a walk around my old neighborhood. It was twilight. It was quiet. It was the same. And also, not the same. When I arrived at the Big Rock, I stopped, stunned. The Big Rock was so small. Granted, time and weather had likely eroded some of its magnificence, but still, I remembered it being so much larger. I took its picture, 
And it didn't mind a selfie with me either. I'm fairly certain the newest neighbors must have thought me a tad crazy. But I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure. The big rock was smiling, happy to see me. Several months later, the neighbor whose yard houses the big rock passed away. Of course, after decades of living next door to each other, I'm still very good friends with his son. One day, I was reminiscing about the big rock on the phone with my oldest daughter. It felt strange to us to say that technically its ownership would be passed to some unknown family. We came up with the brilliant idea to ask my friend if we could have the big rock. We would move it to my daughter's house so that my grandchildren could benefit from its sage existence. I called my friend, my old neighbor, with my request, and he said no. The closing had already been negotiated, and he didn't feel right about removing anything from the property, even an old misshapen rock that they likely didn't want. We ever so briefly considered stealing it. I was pretty sore over being told no. I wanted to rescue the big rock. I wanted to preserve its presence in our lives. One night, nursing my hurt feelings with a glass of wine, a new thought occurred to me. Moving the big rock would have been a dire mistake. Its home lies at the corner where Sunset Lane curves into Starlight Drive. The future generations of Old Cherry Hill deserve to have an anchor in the vast and consuming sea of childhood and to have their own real experiences and memories of the Big Rock. And the Big Rock deserves that too. Our final story is In the Bleak Midwinter, written and performed by Jay Lynn. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow. Snow on snow In the bleak midwinter Long ago I love Christmas carols, and this is one of my favorites. Unlike most other carols, it does not begin with wonder or joy or angels or a lullaby for baby Jesus. It begins with the weather, an entire verse dedicated to the weather, and it's awful. But I like the bleakness of midwinter, the dark evenings, the cold the crunch of snow underfoot, the invitation to be inside with enough light to read, and reading by the light of the Christmas tree. Loving Christmas carols, particularly religious Christmas carols, is not unusual if one is a Christian, but I am not. And what I mean by that is not that I'm Jewish or unchurched, a term from my childhood, I was born into a Christian family with a long tradition in the Church of the Nazarene, 
a family heritage almost as old as this relatively young Protestant denomination itself. I was very genuine and thoughtful about my faith. When I was in middle school, I wrote the script for the youth group's contribution to the Christmas program. Granted, I wrote myself into a lead role as an angel, but still, it was sincere. Sometime in high school, I started to think I belonged somewhere else. My first experience of an Anglican church was a service at Westminster Abbey in the Advent season before Christmas 1987, shortly before I graduated from Northwest Nazarene College. I don't remember anything particular about the service other than I felt as if I had come home. A couple of years later, when I was about to be confirmed in the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church in the U.S., I wrote a long letter to my parents about why I was becoming an Episcopalian. I quoted a passage from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity in which Lewis describes the faith as a house and the common beliefs of Christians as a hall in that house. He says, But it is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live. For a while, my family and I learned how to live across the hall from each other, or perhaps down a long hall from each other. But eventually, I found that the Episcopal Church was not so much a room for me, but a gracious exit. One of the appeals of the Episcopal Church was the liturgy. It was like rereading a favorite book every week with a great book club. But liturgy also has a way of frequently reminding you why you are there. The Nicene Creed, which is recited at nearly every service, begins with, We believe in one God. And I didn't. Not out of bitterness or anger, not because I questioned other people's faith, but this was not how I saw the world or my place in it. So now I'm out of the building, and I still want Christmas. The tree, all of the carols, the Magnificat, the Ave Marias, the shepherds abiding in the fields, we three kings, the holly, and the ivy. I'm not sure why I need it. It's not to keep a foot in the door. Perhaps it's because it's a piece of the tradition I can still hold comfortably. Perhaps I need some part of my family tradition, however reimagined, to share with our son, Clark. When he was younger, he and I often sang Christmas carols during the holidays as part of our bedtime reading. Prior to these sing-alongs, I had not put much thought into what Jesus was called in carols. Mostly it's Baby Jesus, the Christ Child, or the Little Lord Jesus. But the first verse of Good Christian Men Rejoice includes the line, Give ye heed to what we say, Jesus Christ is born today. And Clark gasped, Can we say that? Well, yes. Yes, Jesus Christ is his name. You've just heard me say that differently. This felt 
like a failure on so many levels, only complicated by the fact that the next line refers to the ox and ass. A while ago, my husband Greg and I decided that in order to make this holiday right for our family, we needed to celebrate Christmas on our own terms. And for a few years, we alternated between celebrating in London and celebrating at home with our friends, the Cohen Lifshans, who have no expectations about how to celebrate Christmas and are willing to wear the paper crowns from the Christmas crackers. On one Christmas Eve in London, we attended a family carol service at St. Martin's in the Fields. It's a good place for a child not used to sitting through services. Each pew is a little gated alcove that's private and cozy, where a nine-year-old can put his head down during the sermon without anyone noticing. For me, it was one of the most memorable sermons ever, one that I've read online a few times since. The priest stated, It turns out almost every detail in the story is about something easily ignored or people who are habitually told they don't matter. The Christmas story tells us what matters. Women with no status, migrants and homeless people, social outcasts, foreigners, people of other religions, oppressed people and refugees. They take all the main parts. We want it to be a sweet story about long ago. It turns out it's a very challenging story about today. This is, of course, not all of the sermon. Just as In the Bleak Midwinter is not only about the weather, they both tell us a story of God with us, and I've deviated from that story. The Christmas narrative I'm passing along to Clark, like my spiritual journey itself, is fragmented. A muddle of ideas and stories picked up along the way that have led me to more than one source of light. I will need to trust Clark to find his own light, which may look a bit like mine or Greg's. My worry, or what I find most daunting, is helping him understand darkness, or darkness as I have come to see it. As a child, I was taught that darkness is something inside us, in our nature, but also something supernatural in the world something that needs to be driven out. I think of darkness as more of a consequence, a product of neglect, indifference, power, complacency, ignorance, a place of unforgiving, frosty winds, bitter cold, and hardness, a place populated by those who've been told they don't belong or don't matter. A refugee, a teenage mother, a Muslim neighbor, a black boy, a transgender child. Some of this darkness I easily recognize, but some I may have ignored or pretended not to see. Some darkness I may have tolerated or created. In the future, when Clark is navigating his own spiritual journey more independently, I hope that bleak midwinters remind him that our light, whatever it may be, is not our salvation or solace. 
It is more a lamp or torch, a light to help us discover the people who've been told they don't belong, people whose stories we need to hear. Tonight's episode was directed by ensemble member Dorothy Milne, produced by Lifeline Theater and Sound Concept Media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear about future projects. You can support our podcast at patreon.com slash lifeline theater.